Uh, and for those that remain, I would encourage you to uh, open your copy of God's Word, turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, um, then you can obviously follow along in the bulletin and on the screens as well. Uh, this week I was reminded um, uh, by one of C.S. Lewis's uh, great masterpieces, and that is uh, a book that's called The Screwtape Letters. And if you've never uh, read The Screwtape Letters, it's a uh, fictional book. Uh, and it's written uh, as a correspondence between two demons. One is a senior demon uh, whose name is Screwtape, and the other is a younger demon named Wormwood. And these two write letters to one another, uh, conspiring together how to bring about the spiritual demise of their subject, who is uh, a very young Christian. And so if you've ever read it, it's, uh, it's such an interesting read. But even in that book, Lewis talks a good bit about the church, which is the topic that we've spoken about uh, a good bit over the past couple weeks. And in letter 16, he says this. He says, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for a church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. That search for the suitable makes a man a critic when the enemy, who is God, wants him to be a pupil. I thought those words were important as we think about uh, this sermon series that we're looking at uh, about the church, this sermon series that we started last week. And if you were with us last week, you'll know we used this illustration of the, the church shopping list. And we talked about it in the context of, of where life brings us from time to time, where we have to move from one church to another. And so we often create this mental list of all the things that we want out of a church. And there's really nothing wrong with this. Life brings us to that point uh, throughout our Christian journey from time to time. But the question we've pondered is, what if we allowed God to write that list? What are His priorities for what the church should be, and how do we make his priorities for the church our priorities as a church? And I think that's a, a really important thing for us to consider because after all, the church is God's agent, God's plan for the, for the transformation of our world and the advancement of his kingdom. And so we ask ourselves, how do we get it right? How do we figure all this out? Well, of course, as we do each week, we turn to God's Word. Uh, last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We saw how the gospel in both word and deed as our method and our message needs to be the center or the main thing of the church. But this week, what I want us to do as we think about the church is to look at the church in its infancy, when it just began. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, um, which a small section, and this is right after God's Spirit arrives uh, at the Feast of Pentecost, and it gives us a description of this fellowship of believers of this first church. So this is Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Father, be with us as we uh, think about your word over the next couple of minutes. Uh, We're thankful for your spirit that takes these uh, words written thousands of years ago and applies them to our hearts. So we pray that as we think about your scripture, as we think about this institution called the church, uh, that you would grow us, that you would shape us more and more into your image, that we would leave here changed because we have encountered you in your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This passage, Acts chapter 2, is an important one. Um, In many ways, it's a list for us. It's a list of all of the marks that should be present within this institution that we call a church. We see that these first believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We see that they committed themselves to a sense of community and fellowship with one another. Uh, We see that they were a community of prayer, they were a worshiping community, and that they were a very generous community. And I think in the subsequent weeks, what we want to do is unpack all of these marks or all these factors of the church, but we're going to hold off on looking at the ideas of generosity and community and fellowship. We will get there. But what I want us to look at this morning is the church's, or at least this first church's commitment to one, the apostles' teaching and two, the administering of the sacraments. And I think what we'll see is that these are the ordinary stuff of church, but that at the end of the day, they're anything but ordinary in the eyes of God because what we see is that God often uses ordinary things to have an extraordinary effect. So let's start by looking at the preaching of the word. And we see this uh, in verse 42, where it says, they, these first believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now that's really just another way of saying that these first believers devoted themselves to the gospel, to the, the faithful preaching of God's word. Now they didn't have God's word as we have it today, But our copy of God's word is a summary of that apostle's teaching. So this is in many ways affirming the importance of preaching the word of God. Uh, That word devoted here in this passage, which can really be applied to all of these marks, uh, that word devoted has a, a richer meaning that we often realize. If you were to translate it, it sort of means to continue steadfastly in something or to cleave, think about that image, to cleave faithfully to something. And so this is what God's people did. They cleaved faithfully to all of these things. Uh, It says later in in Acts chapter 5 that they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So they, they didn't stop. They cleaved faithfully. They persisted in teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And I think it's probably safe for us to say that this, of course, wasn't just something true of these first believers, 
But this really is a paradigm for all believers at all times. It's a calling that's placed on every follower of Jesus Christ in every generation. In fact, Colossians chapter 3 says that very same thing. It calls every believer to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. I love that phrase, dwell in you richly. In a sense, calling us to drink from the fountain of God's word at all times because it is rich. There is so much there. We're called to, to dwell in it. We are called to abide in it. Second Timothy chapter four, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So Paul says to Timothy, be ready at all times. Be ready at all times. Now, why is that? Paul goes on. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, that, but having itching ears, they will communicate or they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, I think this is an important passage because it's a reminder to all of us that every single person out there is in some degree on a search for wisdom. And what I mean by that is that life presents to all of us these sort of big questions. And at different times, life presents different questions. But there's something inside of us that when we're persisted with those, or we're, we're confronted with those big questions, we want to find answers to them. And so we search for wisdom. We hunger for those answers. As I thought about that this week, I thought about an old episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. If you've ever seen that old show, Everybody Loves Raymond, it's a great one. And uh, there was an episode where one of the, the oldest daughter in the family uh, asked her parents an important question. And the question was, um, uh, what about babies? Or sort of where do babies come from? And so the dad, Raymond, decides he's the one that's, important, that's supposed to have this question with his daughter. And so uh, he sort of reminds himself of, of all the facts of it and how to best communicate it. And he sort of girds himself up and prepares himself to have this birds and bees conversation with his 10-year-old daughter. He enters into her bedroom. He starts launching into the monologue. And she stops him and she says, Dad, that's, that's not my question. I, I, I don't really care about that. She said, my question is, why are there babies? Why? Why is there humanity? Why are we here on this earth? And of course, the funny scene is the dad was completely ill-prepared to answer this ultimate question from this 10-year-old little girl. It's a great reminder that all of us are presented with those ultimate questions from time to time, and we naturally search for wisdom. We naturally search for answers to those questions. But where do we go to find those answers? Uh, our office building just down the, down the hill from here uh, is probably 80% filled with counselors and life coaches, people that uh, others go to to find answers to these ultimate questions. We all know that there's an endless supply out there in the world of religions and worldviews, and each and every one of them offers all sorts of wisdom. There's even the woke wisdom of our current cultural moment that offers its own perspective on living in a wise and socially conscious way in our world. 
And of course, as you interact with people day in and day out, you hear that everyday language of spirituality, where people are searching to take a little bit of this worldview and a little bit of that perspective to accommodate this religious practice and that religious doctrine. But at the end of it all, we are the ones who are making the choices. We are the authority. We are the ones who are in charge. And what that means is in our culture, we select truths that suit our own passions. And then we come to church. We come to church and we often want something that suits our own passions as well. We don't always want to hear the truth. We instead want the scriptures to suit our own truth and suit our own passions. And so There's a great temptation for churches at all times all over the world to just simply go along with those suiting of passions. But clearly that's not what God calls us to be as a church. He calls us to sit under the truth of his word. And it may not be palatable all of the time. Of course, as we saw last week at points, it is offensive. It rarely suits our own passions and often is not easy for us to hear. It is often incongruent with the world that is around us, but it is the truth that God has called us to live under. If you've spent any time with the scriptures, you'll know that at points, the scriptures can be remarkably comforting. It's as if they know our greatest need and our inward thoughts, and they they ease us with the words of comfort. But you also know you go to parts of the scriptures and you realize just how confrontational they are. There's, of course, these beautiful passages that speak about forgiveness and peace and grace and love, and we love all those things. And then there are passages that are corrective and confrontational. And it's the job of the church to talk about both of those things. Because after all, the scriptures do present us a God who loves us deeply. It teaches us about a God who gave of himself to secure a love relationship with you and with me. But the scriptures also present us a God who very often disagrees with us. He disagrees with us. They show us a God who who hates our sin more than we do and wants to eradicate it from our lives even more than we do. And so these are the parts of the scriptures that we really struggle with, right? Because after all, we want a God who gets on board with our agenda, but the scriptures rarely offer that for us. In fact, as many have said, if you worship a God who only ever agrees with you, that probably means you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. And so what God does is he calls us to be faithful to his word, to put ourselves in the position of a pupil and not in the position of a critic. And he calls his church to be faithful in its preaching of the word, preaching of the whole word, the full counsel of God as it is presented to us in the scriptures because that, after all, is the thing that our hearts most truly need. So, of course, it's the church's job to preach the word. But the second thing that we see here is is what's called the administration of 
the sacraments. And that sounds like a real fancy term. But let's go back to to verse 42 where it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So that definite article, the, before the breaking of the bread, suggests this is more than just uh, folks sharing a meal with one another. It's referring to the faithful practice of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. And these are wonderful gifts that God has given us to not simply fill up a service, but they are wonderful gifts that God has given us to reinforce the truth. We, we call them sacraments, and that's another way of saying sacred practices. In our tradition, it's, uh, it's baptism and it's the Lord's Supper. These are these beautiful gifts that God has given us. And as I reflected on it this week, and when you really think about it, these are practices that God has given us that engage the whole senses. They speak to the whole person. And what I mean by that is this. When we come to church and when we listen to the preached word, our heart is engaged uh, through the, the hearing of the scriptures, through the listening of God's word. And God uses his word to change our hearts. But then we come to the sacraments and we see that God engages our other senses through the sacraments. Things like sight, touch, taste, feel, all those things are engaged in these sacred practices. And God uses these things to engage our hearts, to change our hearts as well. Uh, John Calvin famously called the sacraments God, the handwriting of the Lord to his people. And so what that means is if you come to a service and you hear the preached word, you partake in the sacraments, all of your senses are engaged and the spirit is using all of these things in order to change our hearts. See, what I think is so beautiful about the sacraments is is what they are, is they're these powerful symbols that speak the truth of God sort of through the back door of our hearts. You see, when we listen to the preach word, God's, it's, it's sort of propositional. It's direct. It goes through the front door of our hearts. And it often God uses it to sort of break down the door of our hearts as well. But these symbols of water, of bread, of wine, they teach the truth of the gospel through the back door of our hearts. And what that means is often we are being shaped and changed without even knowing it. That's why these gifts are so precious to God's people, the church. And so these are the jobs. They are the marks of the church to preach the word and to administer the sacraments. They are the ordinary work of the church. But if you pay attention to our passage, what you see is that the ordinary leads to the extraordinary Verse 43, it says, of everyone around these first believers, it says, of everyone around them, all, A-W-E, all came upon every soul. And then at the end of verse 47, it said, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so notice here that it wasn't some big branding process. 
It wasn't some big flashy social media campaign. There weren't celebrity personalities or glitzy programs. After all, these were just simple converted fishermen. This wasn't a slick marketing campaign. It wasn't a clever website. It was the ordinary. It was the preaching of the word and the administering of the sacraments that changed the world. In many cases, all throughout the book of Acts, what you see is that the preaching of the word is actually uh, equivalent to the growth of the church. As the word is preached, the church grows. It says it three times throughout the book of Acts that as the word of the Lord or the word of God continued to increase and multiply, it prevailed mightily. What does that mean? It means the ordinary leads to the extraordinary. I will tell you personally, uh, over the years uh, in my own work in pastoral ministry, uh, this has been such a beautiful reminder to me at times where I needed to really be reminded of it. I can remember years ago uh, feeling particularly discouraged in the midst of uh, ministry. And even pastors, we deal with sort of aspirations and dreams. And sometimes those are really just idols that God has to root out of our own hearts as pastors. And I remember God was doing that in my life through a a period or a season of discouragement. And it was in one of those moments that God brought me a book that probably uh, uh, was just what I needed to hear at the moment. It was Eugene Peterson's book called The Pastor. And if you know anything about Eugene Peterson, it's that he's known for his his translation of the Bible called The Message, Um, but he also wrote a ton of books. And so a lot of people know him as this really well-known author. Uh, In fact, his works were so important, he became a friend of Bono later in his life. So he was this remarkable author. But what a lot of people don't know about him is he was was a pastor, first, first and foremost. He was a pastor to a very simple church, not too far from here, in Bel Air, Maryland. It was a simple church that was ministering in a very simple community. It never grew bigger than probably about 200 people. And he was the pastor there for over three decades. I think it was 35 years by the time he retired. And yet what he often writes is that it was in the ordinary work in which God showed up and did his best stuff. It was in the long obedience in the same direction to use his word. In fact, Peterson also often said about pastors that you are your pastoral best when you are not even being noticed at all. Now, why is that? It's because God brings the extraordinary out of the ordinary. I knew this sermon was coming Uh, because I planned this out months ago. And so I found this book uh, that was called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And I've been reading through it over the past couple months. And it talks about a a very ordinary pastor who was slugging it out in the trenches in a very small town in Canada. And I've only about halfway through it. But I did skip to the very end because the book is written by his son. He's a very well-known Christian speaker and very well-known Christian author writing about how precious his dad was as just this regular, ordinary guy. And he writes about the end of his own father's life. He writes this. He said, when he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no attention paid by the nation. It was in a simple hospital room with no one by his bedside. 
There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he'd stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side, on the other side, all of the trumpets sounded. Dad, he had one entrance into the only throne room that really matters, not because he was a good man or a great man. After all, he was a most ordinary pastor but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him who he longed to hear saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Friends, let's remember together as God's people that God's picture of this thing that we call the church really is a picture of the ordinary preaching of God's word and the administering of the sacraments. But let's also remember, let's also never forget that it is in the ordinary that God brings about the extraordinary. Let's pray.